timer. Ready? Go. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Praise the Lord. My name's Matthew Rojek. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Pastor Leon and Rebecca, if you guys didn't hear or away on a marriage retreat, keep them in your prayers. It's always good to go away by yourself and hear the Word of God and be encouraged in your marriage. Uh, welcome to those of you guys who are new uh, to guests, and welcome to the body at MacAv. It's great to have you guys here. Uh, typically, we do what's called expository preaching, where we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through, and that's what we're doing today. We're going to be in Nehemiah 5, and I owe you a bit of an apology. Some of the text that's up there is going to be in ESV, but I'm probably going to be reading out of what I'm currently reading, which is the Holman translation. Uh, so forgive me for that. Uh, one thing I would ask, and I think I say this every time, is in my mind I've gone over how I've built this structure that we're going to talk about today, and in my mind it all makes sense. All the parts flow and they interlock and they work. Uh, that might not be the case in reality, so when you guys hear and see the construction of today's sermon that I've, I've put together, if you have questions, man, please feel free to... Uh, raise your hand and I'll call on you as long as it's something that pertains to what we're discussing. Uh, if you want to have a conversation about a specific point, maybe we can do that afterwards. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and it's only because of Jesus that we can come before you, because of the work that was done on the cross. Lord, it is so clear to me, especially in the verses that we're going to look at today, that you and you alone unstuff ears and remove scales from eyes and remove stony hearts from us to give us new hearts of flesh that we might serve you. So would you do so now? Lord, speak through your holy scriptures, awaken hearts, awaken minds, encourage us, Father God, to live as you would have us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at five observations today. First one is that Nehemiah listened. Second is that he exercised righteous anger, but did so under control. He confronted those in a biblical, uh, he confronted those at fault biblically. He set a godly, a godly personal example. And we're going to talk about the fear of God. And I don't know if you guys looked at the very beginning of chapter 5. In my Bible, the chapter heading is called social justice. And I think as we read through there, we're going to be able to say, gee, that looks like a lot what's happening right now in the United States, across the globe, and in Detroit. Um, frankly, I don't feel very qualified to talk much about social justice Many of you in here are much more intelligent and articulate in that area than I am, but I'm going to do my best and take a stab at it, so uh, we will definitely touch on that. So let's just jump right in. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during famine. You know, right off the bat, Nehemiah took the time as a good leader 
to give people an audience. You got to remember who he was. He was the cupbearer to the king and, and as such was elevated way above common people. Now again, he's transitioned into being a leader of the people, but I just want to bring that up. He listened to the people. We don't know if afterwards he went around and he talked to anybody and specifically if he talked to the leaders, but we know that he listened. And in my mind, that was just a great point that the scriptures brought out. It appears that there's some, something lacking. Opportunity was lacking here. Uh, whether the prices were high, whether there was no grain, whether it was being exported by this group of nobles that appeared to be controlling things. But they said, man, there's a bunch of us and we're unable to secure grain. We're unable to secure the necessities for us to even eat and live. And we're having to do so by mortgaging three assets that they had. Homes, vineyards, and fields. Now think about the setting that they're in. If I recall correctly, in the Old Testament, there's a portion where the scriptures say that in one hand, they kind of had a shovel for digging up their crops, and in the other hand, they had a, a sword while they're building the wall. I mean, can you guys imagine that, walking around Detroit like that, always with a sword in your hand, because you're having to defend yourself, and building this wall that God's called you to, and on top of that, you can't even get grain to eat? And on top of that, you're having to mortgage the only assets that you have. And what's the worst part about this? This part is not happening from an enemy's hand. It's coming from your relatives, basically. It's coming from your own ethnic group who are putting you in bondage. You look at the equity that was lost to the debtors. Fields, vineyards, and homes. Those are things that you and I would purchase, and as we're paying them off, we would build equity. And to all of a sudden have to turn those over to someone else, and you just lost all that equity solely for the purpose of getting a few morsels of grain? to be able to live. I mean, that, that's the basics. They've lost all of their equity. You know, Proverbs said that the borrower is servant to the lender. So the other thing that happens is all of a sudden the interpersonal dynamics of those relationships are really blown apart. You know, one thing that I think about is I had a friend who was going to buy a franchise and it was a franchise to those check cashing companies who when you need money on Wednesday and you don't get paid till Friday, you go there, sign paperwork, and you get cash. And he wouldn't do it because as a believer, he said the interest rates that they charged were exorbitant. They were almost extortion. And it gets to the point that you are an indentured servant to these people because of you're never able to pay the principal back because you're barely able to make the interest payment. I mean, we've got a modern-day story here that completely relates to them. Can you imagine the hopelessness of these people 
Again, just think about it. Just for the sake of getting a glass of water and a piece of bread, they've given up any hope of equity in those three things. Verse 4, still others were saying we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Not only do we have the above problems that we just talked about, but they didn't even have the minimal necessities of life without borrowing in order to pay taxes. And I think I've brought up in other sermons like, I'm very frustrated with governmental taxes. If you own a business and you see the things that they do, it's abhorrent at times. Again, they've got escalated indebtedness, not only because they had to mortgage fields, mortgage homes, but now they've had to borrow money for taxes. Can you guys see what's going on here? They're sinking further and further and further into debt. You know, and all through my preparation of this thing, I kept thinking of Bernadette and her work with people who have lost their homes, whether illegally because of overtaxation, but it's a similar idea. The only thing, the only thing that some of these people that Bernadette tries to help, or at least bring light to the situation, and some of these peoples that we're talking about in Nehemiah had, the only thing they had of value, they had to give up. And now they're paying for it. What are the possible root problems of this? Control. And you know, I kind of joke about it with my wife and my daughter oftentimes, but like when I, you guys know I own a business, when I unlock the door and I walk through my business, I feel a little bit like a king in his kingdom. Got employees, I've got machines, I create, I distribute, I ship stuff, I import stuff. And I'm going to tell you what, literally if it wasn't for the grace of God, I could be really high-minded about it. To go from, I mean, first week, I made four, or first month in business. I had a wife, two kids, and a mortgage. I made $45 for a month. And we've gotten a lot better since then. <laughs> Obviously, there's an issue of greed here. Uh, they were charging above what they were supposed to for interest, if charging interest at all. And the above all appear to stem from Nehemiah's proclamation, shouldn't you fear God? And we're going to camp out on that pretty soon. I want to bring that to your attention. There's two times in this particular set of scriptures where that uh, is, is brought up. Let's, let's move on to verse 5. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless. But we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Once again, a reminder from the people, we are you. We're not the spoils of war where we're slaves because you conquered us. We are you. They're powerless because with no available resources, their options are just ridiculously limited. They have no options. 
without the resources of vineyards, homes, and fields, how could they possibly redeem their children from slavery? And this is a whole other point we probably spend an entire sermon on, but they're also powerless because society does not value those without financial resources, wealth, or assets. I mean, think of board members at corporations. Are they people who make minimum wage and live in apartments and have no education? Of course they're not. Who do we vote for? Who do we admire? We admire people with wealth and with assets because the idea of success appears to be uh, epitomed in them. And yet these people have none of those things. They're at the bottom of the food chain, and, and it's just gotten worse. They went from middle class to no class, to a caste system almost. What's at stake? And I would say true community living. You know, I'm going to make a presumption here, but I think it's a very fair one. Today you could be a landlord and own properties in Detroit and live in Bloomfield Hills, right? Because you got a car, it takes you 20 minutes to drive down here. I don't imagine that's the same scenario here. Where you've gone from people being peers and neighbors and sharing similar spaces to all of a sudden the Rojeks get in trouble and the stalls come along and loan us money, and now we are their servants. I mean, can you imagine the dynamics of what that would feel like trying to live in community? I mean, it would be appalling, it would be embarrassing, it would be difficult, because there would be the rich and others. Virtually no friendships would happen in here other than between the rich and between the poor. You know, the thing that I really dig about the commons and, and what our, all of our prayers are is that Indian villagers, gross pointers, Pingree Parkers will meet there and actually have dialogue, have conversation, have realistic interaction and not be separated by socioeconomic classes. And there's, there's no way that there's equitable living there. Again, because you're going to have rich and not so much. Verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And said, as far as possible, we've, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you're selling your own people. Only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. His initial anger led to serious thought. Seems like a mature leader. He's got great compassion, great, great passion. 
empathy, indignation, and yet maturity as he pondered the situation. And I think anger arose in Nehemiah for two different reasons. One was he remembered the Mosaic law that we're going to read in a moment, as well as remembering common decency. You know, we'll go to Mosaic law, but think about this. Say it's fall, it's been pouring rain, I'm driving to work, I'm going up to Van Dyke, going up Van Dyke, there's a bus stop, there's a huge puddle there and there's a bunch of people standing there and I blow right through the puddle, blow water all over everybody. You would say, well, geez, it's common sense that you would have moved over and I would say, wait a minute, they shouldn't have been standing there. There's common sense to be had here apart from the law of God. I'm living in my house and my family's eating, but the family next door is not. And every shred of hope, every asset they had, including their children, have been sold to the highest bidder. Leviticus 25, 35 through 43, if your brother becomes poor, and cannot maintain himself with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him a serve. You shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker or as a sojourner. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Again, in Nehemiah 5, we see fear of God in two very different contexts. The one context is a scolding from Nehemiah, and we're going to get to it later, but at the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, hey man, I did the right thing because of the fear of God. And here again, we see two other things that talk about the fear of God in the Levitical law. Moses says when it comes to how how Israel is to treat the poor brothers, one, don't charge them interest, two, don't sell them as slaves. What's happening in Nehemiah 5? Just the opposite. Okay, ready? We're going to switch, shift gears, okay? I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a guy named John Calvin. Uh, great theologian, start of the Reformation, one of the founders of the Reformation. And he explained a topic of fear in two different terms. Servile, S-E-R-V-I-L-E, and Filial, F-I-L-I-A-L. Now, the English language very often is very lacking. I want to say that not all fear is bad. There's good fear. Servile fear is that characteristic often relating to slaves, slavery, or someone imprisoned who's being tortured. A debilitating fear. Fear of drastic physical harm, not for the sake of correction, 
but solely for the breaking of the human spirit. There is no relationship component here save that of a vicious master and a slave. There is no hope of a healthy future, only a promise of lasting torment and hopelessness. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that's the picture we get in Nehemiah 5. Now the other thing that John Calvin went on to say is a type of fear called filial. And I, I want to take a break, talk about a little addendum. Um, we're going to talk about family dynamics here a bit. A lot of us had poor family dynamics or no fi- family dynamics. You know, my dad died when I was nine, an alcoholic committed suicide. Many of you guys have similar stories or the families that you did have, maybe you had a great, or maybe you had a father and a mother, but man, they corrected you with a belt or with verbal abuse. They were interested in breaking your spirit and not in growing you. So the next kind of fear we're going to talk about, if you can, put on a fresh set of eyes, fresh set of ears, and hear what the gospel has to say about a heavenly father, a godly set of parents. Filial fear is the type associated with sons and daughters towards a good father or mother. A good father corrects and punishes out of a love for the child, desiring for them to grow mature as they are conformed to a higher calling, a greater maturity. There's an idea of a family-esque relationship where love and confidence in that love abound. You know that even when you're getting spanked or time out or whatever, that it's for your good because it's not coming out of anger. It's coming out of a desire to purge wickedness out of you, wrong thinking, disobedience, to purge that out of you so that you can grow to be a healthy, straight tree and be a productive citizen. The filial fear of God will mold, shape, and lead to actions that reflect a love and desire to please Him whom we have set our affection on because we have woken to a greater understanding of true Christianity and how it plays out in life's circumstances. Remembering the above passages, this fear will shape our mindset, leading to corresponding actions that are noted in the book of James, where he says, show me your faith by your works. And they will be both in relationship to the present not charging usury or unjust interest rates or whatever that looks like in our communities, as well as the future, remembering that we're going to give account to God, not only for our lives, but those we have sway over in the ability to assist or harm them. 
We see the term fear of God used two times in this chapter. Again, in opposite context. One's in abuse and one's in a healthy motivation to do good. The term is also used in those other Old Testament passage quoted. Let's talk about this phrase as it's a central idea that propels the Jews. I'm sorry. I hate this. Really, I'm sorry, I hate it. It's a central idea that propels the Jews and Nehemiah to act in the ways that they do and subsequently how you and I act. We all have fear and that fear does a few things to us as we enter the circumstances where that particular fear reigns. What's your fear? Seriously, I want to hear, what, what, what do you guys fear? Name it out nice and loud. Okay. What else? Failure. Success. Success. Theft. Death. What else? Loneliness. I think I heard somebody else. Sickness. Sure. I wrote down public speaking, and here's a good one for you. I wrote down Confession Sunday. Cancer, sickness, a current ailment, finances about being able to support, will I ever marry, letting down a friend, client, relative. There's also good fear. Butterflies. Man, I swam competitively for 18 years. Every time I went to swim, man, butterflies. And that's a good thing. An encouragement to self-defense, or I'm sorry, to self-discipline. You fear gaining weight, so you diet. Or you fear heart ailments, so you exercise. You study because you want to get good grades. You want to land a good job. You want to go to a good college. Those are good fears. You want to please your parents. You want to please a boss because you're aware of those future consequences. Boy, I had a water. What happens when fear arise, arrives? Those things that you guys said, when fear arrives on the scene, what's the first thing it does? I'm sorry? It absolutely demands your full attention. It demands your full attention. On our honeymoon, Betty and I are in Florida. We get in our rental car. I shut the door. I'm, I'm driving. Betty's got her door open, passenger seat. I shut the door. There's a bee. And I literally climbed over her lap, out the door, leaving her to fend off the bee. That bee had my immediate attention, and it drove me right out the door. When fear arrives, it demands our immediate attention. You're going to do public speaking? Thanks, Toots. I just told him the story of our honeymoon where I climbed over your lap. Public speaking. All of your focus is on getting up behind the pulpit or wherever it is. Do I have my notes right? How do I look? 
Is my mouth parched? Am I going to be able to speak eloquently? Do I look in the eyes of everybody? And you're thinking through all of these things because of this fear. And again, that's a healthy fear. But let, 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 let's move on. Dread. Debilitating paralysis. Cowering. Sickness. That's unhealthy fear. A heightened awareness towards the object of our fear. A heightened awareness toward the object of our fear. An alertness, a motivation. What am I to do when I have this greater awareness of someone much greater than I? A higher authority. Why is this particular thing here? What is its purpose? This is what Nehemiah refers to when he asks the Jews, shouldn't you fear God? And also when he says of himself, because I feared God, I acted this way. That's healthy fear. Do you guys think that the Jews who were extracting immoral taxes, buying slaves, and creating this classless, hopeless group of people knew the Lord? Did they know the law? I could almost guarantee you, yeah, they did. Because you look, and they repented later. But the problem is that fear was a puny fear. And it didn't translate into corresponding righteous action. Now, I'm going to quote a scripture, and I'm going to quote it out of context. Okay? So pay attention, because I'm going to explain why. The scripture I'm going to quote is talking about believers and unbelievers. I'm going to apply it to this circumstance because I believe there's principle involved and there's plenty of other places in scripture, some of which I'll quote, that back up what I'm going to say. Romans 1, 21, 4, Though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Now I know I've, I've said this before when I've preached. This particular word, for, though, for although they knew God, there's two different words for knowing in the Hebrew or Aramaic. One is, and this is the important one, or one is they knew God. I know Donald Trump, right? Okay? There's a different one. I know Alvin Weathersby. Alvin Weathersby and I have sat across coffee, dinner, elder board meetings, and had deep, intimate conversation. I know Alvin in a much different way than I know Donald Trump. And the knowing that they're talking about here there's two words, gnosis and epignosis. Epignosis is, and, and hear this please, man, give me your full attention on this one, a greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing them. A greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing them. 
They knew God, but they didn't know him like that. They didn't participate in grasping what the law meant. It didn't affect their actions. If I blew Alvin off when he would correct me, it wouldn't be epignosis. It would be, yeah, I know him. Don't really care for what he says. Not going to pay attention to it. Not going to let my effect. Not going to let it affect my life. Then the other verse in James two: What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If brother or sister is without clothes, lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, keep warm, eat well," but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? <laughs> really, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. You and I who know the Lord still have very limited knowledge and understanding, as the scriptures attest to in Corinthians, where it says, we look in a glass or a mirror dimly. We really can't see who we are. We really can't see who he is. But later, that's a present tense, later it says we're going to see clearly not only who we are, but who he is when all is revealed. But the knowledge that you and I possess can increase, thereby giving the action-altering power to do what is right. Scriptures exhort us to renew our mind, to take every thought captive, to make sure our actions prove our faith. They also tell us how the prince of this world has darkened the minds and blinded the eyes of people. I think those Jews knew God, but something got in the way. Their actions betrayed that knowing. And I believe that that's what the blinding was happening in that passage. Give you a modern day example. What about all the plantation owners in the South who were Christians who owned slaves and abused them? Do you not think that they didn't read the scriptures? Do you not think that they went to church every Sunday? Maybe Sunday night? Maybe Wednesday night? Did they not have the whole counsel of God? Of course they did. Were they believers? I believe some were. Of course they were. But look at what they fought. They fought the right to oppress men and women and own them. They knew God, didn't they? But they didn't epignosis God. That's Thanks, Toots. (laughs) Um, Just so everybody on the recording can hear, Betty said, basically, if you're reading the scriptures and you know God, like, and yet you walk in darkness, is that your choice? And I'm, what's my always answer? Yeah, both. Okay, we have limited knowledge. There are things that my personality naturally rejects. I hate organization. I should love organization, right? But I hate it. 
I hate paperwork. I should love it. I own a business, but I hate it. So, yeah, toots, I mean, I would say that there's, there's both. There are times when I know that I willfully choose to be disobedient, plain and simple. But I also believe very clearly that there are times we don't know things. Before moving to Detroit, there was plenty of ideas that I had about blacks. That through talking to Leon, to Alvin, to living in Detroit, to reading books that I would have never looked at before, come to see I believed lies. And I had misunderstanding. And my looking in the mirror was dim. So it's both. So there's a few implications. Those around us that we see acting in ways that God did not intend, they're blind. The scriptures say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, rulers, and wickedness in high places. My point is that we can determine someone specifically making evil decisions. Let's walk through the conversation with them and see if God will give them grace and give them light and give them the truth that would help them change their mind at a point in time when those conversations do not produce the fruit that we see in this set of passages then our righteous indignation can change to a more aggressive response when we see an evil willful God rejecting stubbornness today you and I have a choice will we be lazy setting our vision our fear on what setting our vision our fear on what the world says we should the approval of man, the take all you can get, the, well, they chose that lifestyle, or, well, I worked hard to get at where I'm at, why should I bother sharing? A whole bunch of attitudes. Are we going to do that? Or are we going to allow the fear of God to direct our actions, to motivate us past greed, anger, and callousness towards those that have been created in the image of God? And you guys, sorry, I'm going to just skip the rest because I've, I've got more and we're already at 38 minutes and I, I don't want to bore you guys and I, I don't want to move forward. L- let me just say this. To sum up the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, hey, listen, I had great opportunity as a politician to receive a bunch of wealth and food and wine and goods, but because I recognize that In doing so, the only way that that was possible was because of governmental taxation and some level of abuse that was gained by the backs of workers. He said, didn't do it. I had 150 people at my table, and then he lists oxes, lambs, pigs, all this food that had to happen all the time. He said, yep, did it out of my own pocket, on my own dime. And you know why? He said, because I fear the Lord. So you've got these other guys, and he says, man, you're not fearing the Lord. You're acting wrongly. And then he says, but man, I chose to let the fear of God be where, put my money where my mouth is. So as we close, um, just a couple of application questions. What do you fear? Is it a healthy fear or is it an unhealthy fear? If it's an unhealthy fear, reject it. 
Consider it a lie from the enemy. Renew your mind against those things. Find scriptures to fight that so that you can be clear in your thinking because God, guilt, and hear me, okay? Guilt is good. Guilt is good because it pushes us to do certain things. Guilt brought me to the cross. Guilt brings me to repent. But if you're confused about guilt, then it's going to mess you up. Romans talks about there's a, a guilt that just leads to worldly sorrow, and then there's a guilt that leads to repentance, and that's a guilt from God. So when I say, what do you fear? I'm saying, get rid of the wrongs, fears. What, what is Mike going to think of me? Nah, no good. What is God going to think of me? And secondly, does your fear of God actually alter your choice, alter your actions, alter the way you think, alter the way you do things? And my desire, my prayer for you guys is that we would continually being allow the light of the gospel to bring light to our eyes because everything else in this world is trying to do the contrary to it. So let me close in prayer, and then after I pray, uh, we're going to take tithe and offering, and we welcome you guys to give to the Lord if that's what you want to do. If you're new here, you know, you're welcome not to, to participate in that. Then we're going to take communion. The elders are going to come up and offer the elements. And the way we do it here at Mac is then we're going to go back to our seats and we'll take it all at once as I lead us in that. I would ask of those of you that are parents that you be paying attention to the spiritual maturity or lack of maturity of your children, recognizing that communion is a pretty serious affair. And so we leave it up to your discretion, but we're asking that the fear of God... <laughs> would be in you, that you would pay attention to your children's spiritual maturity level. So if uh, the guys who are going to take the tithe would get up, and then I'm going to pray. Lord, difficult subject today. We see where Nehemiah in the very end tore his clothes and called down almost like a declaration of curse. If the guys didn't fulfill the promise that they said about giving lands back, like giving taxes back, interest. Lord, I would pray in Jesus' name that the turmoil that our souls feel as we hear hard things from your scripture and we see hard things in our neighborhoods and across the globe. Lord, may we not shuck that off as saying, well, I want to be happy. I don't want to think about that stuff. Lord, you demand justice. You demand we be people of mercy. You demand that we pay attention and not sit idly back while the world dictates how and when and where and why. Lord God, raise up a righteous nation. Raise up righteous churches. 
who are willing to have difficult, hard, clear conversations. May Mac be counted in that number. Lord, your word says that you love a cheerful giver as we recognize how ridiculously generous that you've been with us. I pray, Father God, and I would ask you, may we give generously and not under guilt or compulsion, but may we give generously. In Jesus' name, amen.